Most of the M42 in Staffordshire is a destination that's been bringing relief to tired parents since 1954. Theme Park Drayton Manor is one of the country's most popular amusement attractions and welcomes over 1 million visitors a year. Spread over 180 acres are roller coasters, funfair rides and play parks, making it one of the top leisure days out in the UK. It's unlikely that most of its visitors have ever wondered about the history behind the theme park. And why would you when you're there to have fun? But the name is a clue. The land where rides called Apocalypse now stand is all that's left of the estate once belonging to one of the most powerful families in Britain. And it tells a fascinating story about politics, industrial production and plantation society. I'm Moya Lothian-McLean a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. In 1790, Sir Robert Peel Sr. splashed out on some new real estate in Staffordshire. Peel was an enormously rich man. His new crib, Drayton Manor, became his principal residence and also brought with it his entry into politics as Member of Parliament for Tamworth. Peel's wealth had been forged in the heat of the Industrial Revolution and the cotton trade. As a result, he virulently opposed the burgeoning slavery abolition movement because it threatened his fortune, which propelled him to a baronetcy. And yet, he was also deeply invested in the reform of working conditions of the people who toiled in his factories, a crusade he passed on to his son, also called Robert. When his father, Peel Sr., died, Robert inherited the cotton cash and Drayton Manor from his dad. He used some of that money to rebuild the estate as a grand mansion in the 1830s, fit for his status as a rising star of the Tory party. Robert Jr. had been in politics since 1821, becoming MP for the rotten borough of Cashel and his dad's sponsorship at the tender age of 21. Later, Robert Jr. would become one of the most influential Tories in British history and the father of modern conservatism. As Home Secretary, he created the modern iteration of the police force in Britain, after initially experimenting with new policing tactics to suppress Irish citizens under English rule, and eventually ended up serving two terms as Prime Minister. But his descendants struggled with bankruptcy, and in 1917, Drayton Manor was put up for sale, later being demolished and disappearing to history as one of Britain's lost country houses. I want to know more about the links between the country houses that have gone from seats of power to benign days out and Britain's slavery history. What can they tell us about the way the slave trade directed the distribution of money, power and people? Robert Peel was the prime minister to Queen Victoria and was identified as an abolitionist and a liberal in many ways. His dad, who started off from small beginnings, was a very entrepreneurial sort of capitalist type of guy. And he made his money trading calico of, of cotton. And he bequeathed to his son, Robert Peel Jr., over 1.5 million pounds. Now, a lot of that was you know, money derived from the exploitation of slave labor. I'm speaking to Madge Dresser, an academic historian who specialises in social and cultural history. When she says over £1.5 million, Madge means in today's money. Madge explores the history of ethnic minorities, the history of slavery, women's history and working class history. And she has some thoughts on the contradictions of Sir Robert Peel Sr. 
He's a funny guy, his dad, because he was a Tory, but he wanted factory reform. So he wanted married women and children not to be allowed to work in factories. So in his way, he was trying to do good. But he also was somebody who used slave-produced cotton to print his calico that he traded. And he signed a petition because he was in parliament for the continuation of the slave trade in 1809. So although his son later became much more liberal and rebuilt Drayton Hall in 1831, liberal in terms of slavery, his money and that house and that property couldn't have been possible had his father not made his money in part off the back of slave labor. They reckon with the National Trust properties and other properties, something like one in 10, one in eight have some sort of connection with slavery-related wealth. So the Peel House, when you see that house, it was rebuilt in 1831, and it was only made possible by the money that Robert Peel's father had accrued. And a lot of that was derived on the labor of both white people who were exploited as factory workers, but more to the point on the labor of enslaved Africans who produced the cotton, which his dad helped to trade and print. As Maja said, we can't reduce country houses to simply being products of slavery, but they exist a lot in plantation society and there are numerous links. So how typical are the Peel family links, Robert Peel Sr. specifically, to the country house compared to Britain and British society as a whole at this time? He is typical in some ways because some of the country houses were tied to people who made their wealth off the trade and slave produced goods. Others were plantation owners or they inherited a plantation. Others held government office where they were paid salaries or got bribes because they were involved in the administration of slave regimes in Jamaica or the Carolinas or whatever. So there are different ways in which people are linked. And it isn't just about slavery, the country house, because once you start researching it, you'll see a lot of the wealth comes from colonization of East Indies, etc. So what we're seeing a lot and what we saw with the Peels is that there's this weird parallel between an indirect or direct link to money from slavery. In these great country houses, they build up these seats and then at home, they're very paternalistic, often using their money to try and improve the conditions of the people who work for them or the poor around the country estates. And there's this weird dissonance between the two things. Why is that something we see a lot with these masters of these country houses and the legacies they're leaving? You can't generalise because a lot of times these owners actually exploited their white workers. So when they improved an estate, which was a big thing about, you know, clearing the land of all these higgledy-piggledy shacks and villages and, and having a beautiful country park, you know, where did the workers go or where did the tenants go? And Penryn Castle in Wales... A lot of the money was made through exploited tenants, but also the slate quarries that they had on their property. And their industrial relations into the 19th century were so awful that even into the 20th century, the descendants of those slate workers won't go to Penryn Castle because they're so bitter. You have exploitation on both sides. Now, sometimes it depends on which generation the descendants of the people who made their money from the slave trade then went on to try to lobby for either the uh, um, abolition of the slave trade or the emancipation of enslaved Africans. So their relationship to exploitation is a bit more complicated. So you have to take each case and look at it in its complexity. And of course, when you want to go out and visit a country house, you don't want to know all the ins and outs of stuff. You know, it's too complicated. But what I would say is that country houses were Emblems of power, they were the way that even today people consolidate if you're a rock star or you're part of the very 
wealthy elite. You use a country house or a, a select property to consolidate your status. And the way that some of these properties were represented as, oh, this was the descendant of somebody who was for abolition or, you know, he was for emancipation. It's usually a he, I should say. And actually, when you, you know, dig back to see how the money was made that enabled them to take that grandstand, you realize that there were slavery, origins of slavery produced wealth. I do think it is really important to make a separation here. While the exploitation of white workers was terrible, it's not comparable with the experience of being enslaved. Enslaved Africans were no longer deemed as human beings, they were deemed property, and they were ripped from their countries and families and then forced into lifelong labour. But looking at the links between slavery and stately homes is complex. And while some owners, or those who inherited properties, may have become abolitionists, we must still recognise how these homes became in the first place. And this compassion that we see for the descendants of slave owners is rarely extended to the descendants of slaves, especially when it comes to conversations around reparations. With country houses, was there a difference between the state of the country house in the north of Britain, up to Scotland, for example? Did the country house have as much status in and around London? And what were the links with various trades in each city? For example, in Bristol, it was a big slaving port and a big trading port. So were there more country houses around there? I asked Madge what was happening around the country in this period. Well, it depends which bit of the period you're talking about, because it varies. So like with Bristol, a lot of the people who made their money, not just as slave traders, but in trading to the West Indies or trading with West African warlords or exporting goods to them or using Indian made cloth to export or weapons, you know, that they could export to people got wealthy. And then they began to move out of the little jumbly houses in the medieval center of the city to these new places, you know, the Georgian squares, the kind of, you know, more genteel properties. And then some of them got wealthy enough to buy houses further out. And so you do find a concentration of houses around both London, Bristol, and then later on Liverpool. And then Scotland was another area where you had a concentration of country houses. So it varies over time. And now what we're finding when we do the new investigation place by place is that a lot of uh, properties in the Midlands that we think have nothing to do with slavery because they were you know, to do with coal-induced wealth or metal production, etc. We find that even after emancipation, these places had trading links with the expanding slave economy and things like railways and the export of technology to colonial, you know, trading links with the, the colonies show that the legacy with colonialism and the exploitation of people in the West Indies and the Indian subcontinent, which post-date formal slavery in Britain, are still replicating the exploitation of people in the colonies. Madge has helped me understand that many of Britain's manor houses will have direct links to slavery because that's where so much money was made. So the wealthy occupants of these grand mansions were likely to have their fingers in the pie. But I'd also like to understand more about Sir Robert Peel Jr. specifically and what he represents about the country's slaving past. My name's Sami. I'm an historian based at London South Bank University and my area of expertise is slavery and abolition in the context of Manchester and Manchester's history. This is Sami Pinabasi a historian who has dug into the Peels. He's behind a hotly debated campaign to get rid of a statue of Robert Peel Jr. in Manchester. I asked Sami about where the Peel wealth that bought Drayton Manor came from. 
Robert Peel Jr. was left £140,000 by his father in his will when he died. And that money was used to invest in the cotton trade and cotton manufacturing. Robert Peel's father was one of 10 millionaires at the turn of the 19th century. Robert Peel Sr. and Jr. both employed around 15,000 men, women and children to work in the cotton calico manufacturing industry in Britain. And Robert Peel Jr. inherited around 30 to 40 mills, factories and warehouses throughout Lancashire and Staffordshire. So manufacturers like Robert Peel saw the maintenance of order as by far the most important task of government. And this idea of order and industry really permeates the political career and business career of Robert Peel Jr. Also the fact that this wealth was derived from cotton spinning industry. And this cotton was obviously picked by enslaved people throughout the 13 colonies, which became the United States and also the British West Indies. So he inherited this wealth from his father and all this industry from his father. He himself was also pro-slavery. They're both pro-slavery. His father was pro-slavery. His father circulated a pro-slavery petition in Manchester in 1806. His son was also pro-slavery too, as evidenced by his speeches in Parliament while he became an MP in 1809. This kind of legacy of pro-slavery and reliance upon the plantation economy really permeates both their lives and both their political careers as well. His father was an MP too. Robert Peel Jr. basically purchased his seat in Cashel Tipperary in Ireland in 1809. He purchased his seat using the money he accrued from his business interest, which was in slave-produced cotton. So according to Sami, the Peels were both pro-slavery, which contradicts what we heard before during my conversation with Madge. And another thing I need a clarification on was when Sami said Robert Peel Sr. was one of 10 millionaires. What does that mean? His father was one of 10 millionaires in Britain. He accrued that wealth from cotton manufacturing and textile industry, which was really sprouting throughout Britain, but particularly in Manchester. Manchester was known as Cottonopolis because it was its wealth was derived from the cotton trade, really. And I think that that focus on the Peels as millionaires is really a really important one to help us understand these issues Robert Peel represented, because Robert Peel, both Peels, but particularly Robert Peel Jr., are nexuses for how we understand the modern world. Robert Peel was you know, one of the first nascent capitalists in the 19th century. So he represents capitalism, he represents industry, industrialization, industrial revolution, free trade, conservative party. He, his time with Manifesto helped create the modern conservative party. Sami mentioned both Peels buying their seats from cotton money. But what does that mean in practice? And was that common for wealthy men at this time? Well, it was actually staggeringly normal for rich men, particularly rich men like Robert Peel, to be able to purchase a, a seat in a rotten borough. Now, rotten borough was a, was a seat in Parliament where typically owned by one large landowner who could basically enforce his political opinions and his beliefs on the tenants of the land. And it basically meant that people like Robert Peel could basically pay the landowner to just purchase a seat and go into Parliament. The irony is that, yes, he purchased his seat in 1809, but the thing is, he represents, well, he supposedly represents like modernity and like so-called like liberal Toryism. And the fact that he purchased his first seat was based in Ireland. He himself was rapidly anti-Irish, anti-Catholic. He actually, the Irish famine started under his watch. So Robert Peel represents paradox, which is interesting to historians, but at the same time kind of lays out his hypocrisy. Being able to buy your way into power is a grand tradition that has endured today, it seems. But in the 1700s, it was just a more explicit practice and explains why families who made their money in slavery often still have a presence in politics, like the Draxers. For the Peels, cotton and slavery gave them the money to change the entire political direction of the country. 
I know Robert Peel Sr. was hugely opposed to the abolition of slavery because of the threat it posed to his business. But what about Peel Jr., who became Prime Minister the year after the slave trade was abolished in the British Empire? Robert Peel's ministry did force many nations to adopt emancipation during his premiership and use the Royal Navy to hunt ships, slave ships. But this was done as part of informal empire. The informal empire means that basically Britain would use its military strength to put diplomatic pressure on smaller nations, such as Uruguay, Portugal and Spain, in order to gain economic, political and cultural domination over those nations. It was a very profitable enterprise for Britain to be engaged in. It wasn't done out of any humanitarian instinct, but done more out of economic, diplomatic, imperial motivations. Basically, Peel made anti-slavery overtures in the 1840s because pro-slavery became so repellent and so taboo after the emancipation in 1833. So there was a lot of political, cultural, economic, social capital to ally yourself to show support for abolitionism, even though you may never have been an abolitionist or have supported abolitionism previously, which Robert Peel never did. In fact, Robert Peel fought abolitionism in the 1830s. What did he do? Well, he gave countless post-slavery speeches in Parliament in the 1830s, so he was sceptical about immediate emancipation because it would take away the interest of the master in the child. And though the attachment of the parent would remain, it was doubtful whether this, in every case, could be found sufficient for the due protection of the child. Peel would rather leave this as a matter of regulation for colonial legislatures. So they are trying to say, we shouldn't be interfering in colonial matters. It should be left to the plantation owners in the West Indies to legislate for this, to legislate emancipation, rather than British Parliament interfering in those matters. So Peel was concerned with the rights of plantation owners. He didn't think £20 million was enough money for them. To quote, £20 million sterling should be appropriated as compensation to the planters whose rights such abolitionists tend to affect. And he also talked about a recent slave rebellion and the Baptist War in Jamaica in 1831, I think it was. So immediately after that took place, he said in Parliament in 1832. Surely the events which have taken place in the West Indies, the insurrection scarcely suppressed in Jamaica, must impress in the minds of all the danger of laying down precise rules for the government of a people thousands of miles away from us, in ignorance of the events that may have occurred and have rendered our wars are inapplicable to a new state of affairs. So that is basically saying that the British Parliament should be legislating on matters we don't understand or can't comprehend because we're not living in the West Indies. He also suggests that there should be delay in abolition in order for a plan which would respect the rights of property. So again, he's talking about these people, these human beings as property. I don't understand why they don't focus on what he believed or what he said in Parliament. They just focus on the fact that he created the police force or abolished the court laws. Peel argues against immediate abolition by saying that the, the passing of such a resolution might, might lead to a misconstruction of the intentions of the government, both by the whites and by the blacks. It might widen a gulf which personally existed between them. It might make the slaves some more impatient of slavery. It might, by the excitement of false hopes, encourage them to resistance and leave us no alternative but against put them down by physical force and delay the time for giving them without any prospect of safety or advantage the blessing of freedom. Again, they saying that we have to be really careful with this idea of freedom. It's dangerous. And if we don't give them freedom and they violently react, we'll have to suppress them again. How very capitalist of him. The irony is... A lot of capitalists were kind of anti-slavery because the plantation economy was seen as like a really old-fashioned, really inefficient system. There wasn't much room for like technological advancement in the plantation economy. 
So it's kind of ironic that someone like Robert Peel would have been so pro-slavery. And the reason behind it, I think it's just his father was extremely pro-slavery. And I think just being a Tory and just being so extreme, really, in views on religion and race, it's just, it kind of permeated his thinking. And it's kind of strange because he himself wasn't a, a plantation owner. He wasn't invested in the slave trade. But then again, his principal business concern was cotton. There was this rumour and belief that if you abolish slavery in the West Indies, then that might make the price of raw cotton rise. So I think that might be a reason why as well. But in the primary source evidence that I found, I mean, he's talking about abolition would create an amalgamation of, quote, the two, the two distinct... distinct and separate races in the free society. Peel's opposition to abolition seems to be rooted in fear. The quotes we've heard from Peel's speeches in Parliament, like separate, separate races, races, widen the gulf encourage them to resistance. These all sounds like fear. Could that mindset be linked to Robert Peel's history with policing an island, another British colony at the time? Robert Peel founded the police force, the Metropolitan Police Force in 1829. He basically had a belief in like despotic government and authoritarianism. He was a profoundly authoritarian man, which again is one of these contradictions in Peel's legacy because we like Public knowledge or public understanding of Robert Peel is that he was like a liberal Tory again. He himself was quite authoritarian. And so he first established a police force in Cashel in Tipperary in Ireland, which was where he purchased his first seat. He basically created this police force. It was like a petri dish for experimenting in his like this new police force, but in, in Ireland rather than mainland Britain. Yeah, he established a police force in 1829. The first instance of him using this new police force was in 1814 to quell disturbances in Middle Third in Ireland in 1814. So it's kind of ironic that this man who's known as Liberal Tory founded the police force. And the thing is, though, that the Peelian principles themselves, like nine principles of policing, it's often quoted by people even today, 21st century. These nine principles are one, to prevent crime and disorder. Two, the power of the police to fulfill their functions and duties is dependent on public approval. 3. Secure and maintain the respect and approval of the public in the task of securing observance of laws. 4. The extent to which the cooperation of the public can be secured diminishes proportionately to the necessity of the use of physical force. 5. Seek and preserve public favour not by pandering to public opinion but by constantly demonstrating impartial service to law. 6. Use physical force only when the exercise of persuasion, advice and warning is found to be insufficient. 7. Maintain at all times a relationship with the public, the police being only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen in the interest of community welfare and existence. 8. Recognise always the need for strict adherence to police executive functions and to refrain from even seeming to usurp the powers of the judiciary. 9. The test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder and not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with them. Hmm, it seems like perhaps people need a reminder of the Pelian principles in policing today. We've included the full version of the Pelian principles in the episode description. Pelian principles in their own terms, are good principles. But the thing is, like when he was Prime Minister, as so Home Secretary and Prime Minister, he never applied those principles throughout the British Empire. He never applied Pelian principles in 
Ireland, India, Australia and beyond. Pelian principle basically means not having an armed police force. Yet we know colonialism was kind of administered through brute force and brutality and exploitation and violence. Again, this, this idea of like paradox and the sense of like hypocrisy permeates Robert Peel's actions and his legacy, which is ironic because he always had one eye on history and he was always kind of curating his own legacy for future historians to consider. So I think the fact that we're now debating Robert Peel's legacy and debating the relevance and appropriateness of his statues in public places, he would hate that. So where does Peel's legacy as this liberal paternalistic conservative come from? He fell off his horse in 1850 and that's how he died. I think since then he kind of lauded this, this like thoroughly modern man who kind of did all these great things and passed all these wondrous laws that benefited everyone. And like the reality is there was always like a motive behind everything he did. Like for example, people will say, oh, he abolished the corn laws and that meant people could afford cheaper food, which was true, people could afford cheaper food. But the only reason we pass it is because he increased the caloric intake for his workers, which would improve the efficiency of the work that they did so they could produce more goods. There's always like a self-serving motive into everything that he did. And obviously there are propagandists today who still kind of obsessed with Peel's legacy. He's trying to say that Peel only did good things and you, know, you can't say anything bad about Robert Peel. Well, the reality is I'm not bringing any revelatory news. This stuff has been out there since he spoke these words. I've got one more quote, which I think is really definitive in terms of like understanding Robert Peel's thinking. So basically Robert Peel said in Parliament in 1833, a few months before emancipation occurred, but we, we suppose that some slaves should not wish to demand their freedom at any time, but should prefer remaining as they were. What should follow? Why there should be still two classes, one of slaves and one of apprentices. And for the one, the whole slave code was still to be continued. Would not that be a great and inconvenient anomaly? So there he's basically saying that it's a bad idea to let some people be free because some people might want to remain slaves. Is there anything you think our listeners should know that is really, really left out of the narrative? That Robert Peel was pro-slavery, that he started the genocide in Ireland. We have to reclaim our public spaces. We can't, the statues of these of people like Robert Peel just are intolerable to all free-thinking people. And we have to think about the, the values and that our society reflects. Do we want our society to reflect the values of people like Robert Peel or the values that we reflect of equality, of freedom, of hope? Change is difficult. Change is hard for people. It's hard for things to change and Things have to change, though. You can't say the same. I mean, we have to reclaim our streets. We have to reclaim our history from these bigots. I mean, I understand this, the pro-statue argument. I understand it, and it's threatening for people to understand who have only been told half the story about figures such as Robert Peel. If they only know one thing about Peel, is the fact that he created the police. But what does it tell you that the man who created the police was such a pro-slavery bigot and a racist and a white supremacist? Are we supposed to ignore these links? Are we supposed to just look, gloss over them and just put a little plaque on the statue? I think Robert Peel is in a league of his own. I started digging into Drayton Manor thinking at the very least it would throw up some interesting links between industrialists and Britain's slaving history. Instead, I found myself deep in the bowels of the English manor house, sifting through the dirty laundry of his elite owners and discovering how the origins of policing are linked to colonial oppression and pro-slavery mindsets. Dirty money indeed. We've included a link to Sami's latest update on the statue consultation, which includes how you can get involved in the episode description. Human Resources was produced by Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumba. Sound design by Ben Yelovitz. Flute, Sean Herbert. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>